Happy New Year here at Westside. It is the first Sunday of the new year, 2014, as Bill would say, in the year of our Lord. And it's a wonderful time to see you here this morning. I am excited to be here. I was excited when Jason asked if I would be willing to, to preach this morning. And I said, you sure you want to do that to the church this first Sunday of the year? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So praise God. All right. Well, see, I'm not going to ask for a raise or a show of hands, but how many of you have made New Year's resolutions? How many of you have broken them already? <laughs> yeah, my resolution not to make a resolution got broken pretty quickly, too. Um, well, you may find this interesting, but according to an article in Forbes magazine, it was estimated that over 40% of Americans actually make a New Year's resolution. And you say, okay, well, yeah. Well, just to put that in perspective, only about a third of Americans ever watch the Super Bowl. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of folks. However, research by the University of Scranton also suggests that only a paltry 8% actually carry out those resolutions throughout the year. Um, so, and of course, not all resolutions are created equal. I mean, your resolution to make it your goal to get the highest score on your family's favorite video game, probably not as, say, on a par with um, dropping 30 pounds and improving your cardiovascular fitness. Or, say, um, ensuring that you have a daily quiet time and you read through the whole Bible in a year. I mean, those don't quite stack up the same. So they're not all created equal. And resolutions in and of themselves are not a bad thing. And it may even surprise you to know that I found that Paul had made a resolution. I don't know if he made it on the New Year's, but he made a resolution. And today we're going to look at that. And we find it in his first letter to the church at Corinth in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if you start turning there, um, we're going to have to cover a bit of background material before we just jump in, however. So what was Corinth like? Well, in the Fawcett's Bible Dictionary, the city of Corinth is described as being um, famed for its commerce. It was a hub of commerce. It had two ports, one on either side of an isthmus, so it's a little skinny bit of land that separated Greece from the Peloponnese area. And uh, in Paul's time, it was the capital of Acacia. It was very wealthy, extremely wealthy. It was the seat of the Roman proconsul in the area. So it had political importance as well. And we found that, by the way, in Acts uh, 12, 18, 12, if you want to look. Its people, though, had a Greek uh, love of philosophical sub subtlety. They loved orations. They probably would not like me this morning. But they loved good orations. They loved clever speech. They loved uh, new ideas. If you remember about Paul being on Mars Hill in Athens, um, He's proclaiming the gospel, and someone says, this is something new. So they all wanted to hear what he had to say until he said it. So Corinth was a very cosmopolitan place. However, it was a very immoral place as well. In fact, uh, historians of its day cite the phrase, to Corinthicize was to be exceedingly immoral and, and bad very evil or wicked in that way, proverbial for playing the wanton, if you will. The worship of Venus, there was a temple there uh, on the uh, Acrocorinthus uh, area. It's a big, big mountain in, on that city or in that city. It was attended uh, by over a thousand 
temple female prostitutes who uh, plied their wares for strangers coming into the city. So this is the, the city that church uh, of Corinth is in. Like Westside, Corinth was a church plant. You may have never thought of it that way, but it was. It was planted by Paul uh, during his second missionary journey, probably around A.D. 50 or so. Uh, and if you want to read about that, it's in Acts 18, 1 through 17. He stayed there about 18 months before moving on uh, and eventually settling in Ephesus for about three years. And it was while he was in Ephesus that he receives a letter from a number of people uh, from the church at Corinth. And they're reporting a number of serious problems in the church, in this church plant. Not the least of which were dis- disunity, immorality, marriage and divorce, arguments about food dedicated to idols. We don't really wrestle with that too much. Uh, head coverings, the Lord's Supper, speaking in tongues, resurrection, and a whole other thing, a bunch of other things. Clearly, the church at Corinth was planted in the midst of a very dark and immoral culture, which constantly constantly flaunted both its wealth and its sensuality in the face of these believers, day in and day out. Kind of sounds like where we live in our country right now, doesn't it? (coughs) Pardon me. You can't turn your head away from William's mic. They don't like it. So where they were is very much like where we find ourselves today in our culture. At least our culture seems to be more and more turning in that direction. Not quite as bad yet, but it's getting there. So Paul's overall purpose to his letter, his first letter to the Corinthian church, is to resolve the problems that are at Corinth for the purpose of bringing about Christian order, unity and order. He wants those two things. He wants to bring them back to remind them of who they are, united in Christ, and then give them practical ways that they can order their lives. So good, good things right there. In today's passage, though, we're going to see that he's pointing the Corinthians to the true object and basis of their faith. And that is God's power as demonstrated in Jesus Christ rather than mere human wisdom or clever reasoning. So now we can begin to look at our passage today. We're going to do some background on it as well, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 1 and read our way to uh, 2, 1 through 5. So I'm reading from the ESV. It should match the, if you have a pew Bible there, it should well, table Bible, it should match, uh, match those. Paul picks up, he's been, he starts off his letter, he's already having to address some of this, these factions that have arisen in this church plant. Some people are saying, I'm of Paul. Some are saying, I'm of Apollos. Some say, I'm of Peter. A couple others say, well, I'm of Christ. But Paul says, look, I didn't baptize any of you, and I'm gl- or I, maybe two or three, and I'm glad it was just that. Is, is Christ's body divided? And he picks up. He says, Christ did not send me, in verse 17, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly. I like better the word foolishness. The New Methodist Standard picks that out nicely. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Messiah, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that seem to be or are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And now today's passage. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, and here's our tie-in today, that word decided in the Greek, it's um, krano, comes from the verb to judge, to decide, to determine, or to resolve. And I believe here, decided is a little namby-pamby. It's a little weak. This morning, I decided to have eggs. But I didn't resolve to have eggs. Paul here resolved. He resolved something. To know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the purpose of why he's even writing this, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the verses leading up to this passage, and even in the ones following after, Paul repeatedly contrasts the wisdom of the world, the rulers of this age, with the wisdom and the power of God. I hope you picked up on that. There's this play and counterplay between these two ideas. And he defines or identifies the wisdom and the power of God with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The former, that is the wisdom of the world, breeds factions, while the latter promotes unity in Christ. Again, note these recurring themes of wisdom, both worldly and godly recurring themes of word or speech and spirit or spiritual which appear, all the latter being connected with godly wisdom. But in this particular passage, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, Paul is stating how he proclaimed the message of Christ, not with human wisdom or great oration. Again, both of these very much prized by the native Corinthians and the culture of his day. But he did so by the demonstration of the spirit and power, that their faith would be rooted in God's power as demonstrated in Christ and not in mere persuasiveness or clever human speech. <coughs> My first point is Paul reminds the Corinthians that his coming to them was in humility. Again, he, as he said, when I came, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. But he came 
proclaiming the testimony of God. Remember, the testimony of God, he equates that with the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life under the law, fulfilling every requirement of God's commandments, and then died on the cross in our place, in your place, in my place, in the place of those who he's calling to himself as a people. That is the gospel. Oh, and on the third day, an important part, he rose again, demonstrating that God accepted that prize and for our righteousness. He took the punishment we deserve. In turn, he gives us his very own righteousness. And if you are in Christ this morning, you stand not only forgiven, but cleansed from your guilt and shame and righteous before holy God. I don't care what you've done this morning. If you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't look disappointed. He smiles at you because he delights in his son. And because he delights in his son and you're in him, he delights in you. Now, this is for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, take note. Now, Paul not only came avoiding eloquent speech and clever arguments while proclaiming this testimony, but he had a single focus. Again, Jesus Christ, the crucified. It's that simple, really. My second point is that Paul reminds the Corinthians that his focus was on Christ alone. We see that in verse 2-2. First of all, Paul was resolute. He was determined. He made a resolution. And this resolution he keeps. His focus was to find nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified as a unifying feature among the church at Corinth. That's what he wants to see. And that's what he determined and resolved to know. Why is it so important? Why that thing? What about all these other problems they have? Well, I can almost guarantee if you take care of those, the rest falls into place. When people appropriate that and begin to live by faith, by God's Holy Spirit, in that truth. Jason loves to say and and remind us, and I appreciate it because I have to be reminded of it all the time, The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel and the message of Christianity is not be a better person, try harder. See, so many of our resolutions, our New Year's resolutions, all kind of deal with that sort of try harder bit. Well, just do do better. Okay, that doesn't mean that as Christians we just sit back and just kick back and say, okay, well, God, you'll do it all. There is a personal responsibility that comes into that. But the source of the power for that has to come from Christ and Christ alone through his Holy Spirit. And by doing, and how do we do that? Well, we get into here. We feed our spirit in the word of God. As we were praying this uh, morning, uh, Megan mentioned, uh, as we were praying in the back, that thanking God for the cleansing of the washing of the water of the word. I believe that was the reference you were using. God's word cleanses us. God's word washes us. It renews our spirit. And it feeds us, amongst other things. This table also feeds us as another means of grace by which we can uh, empower ourselves through Christ, through God. Paul also, uh, he had a single-mindedness. Now, this single-mindedness, I want you to understand, did not render him, uh, rendered him neither irrelevant nor ineffective. We hear a lot about relevancy these days. We've got to make it the message relevant. 
The message is relevant. The word of God is relevant. That doesn't leave us off of the responsibility of communicating it in such a way that people can understand. But in the end of the day, it's not we who convert. It's the Holy Spirit who calls, who drags us into the kingdom. I, I love that verse where Jesus says, no man can come to the Father except the Father first to draw him. That word draw, is that sort of a, come on, come on to church, come into my family. Oh, no. Anybody here fish? Any fishermen? Anybody ever drowned a worm? Have you ever pulled a fish to shore? Did the fish want to come? No. That fish had a hook in its mouth. That fish was being drawn. And that's the same kind of word picture. I mean, that fish is getting dragged out of its natural element onto the shore and soon into your frying pan. God drags those who are outside of his kingdom into his kingdom. He has to do that work. Why? Because we are enemies with God. In our own hearts, by ourselves, we want nothing to do with God. We want to be our own little gods, and we want to do our own thing. But God, by his mercy, calls us and draws us, drags us, he, re he renews us by his Holy Spirit so that we can understand and turn to him in faith and believe this good news of the gospel. So Paul understood this. He says, I don't, I'm not ministering in my own strength. Christ has to be central. His power has to be central. So he reminds the Corinthians that his ministry was in the power of the Spirit. Verses uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 2. He says, I was among you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, for I understand. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and power. What kind of demonstrations? Well, God may have done miracles through him while he was there. I don't know. The Bible doesn't record it. But the most miraculous thing from our perspective is the fact that anyone was saved, that people were turning to Christ. They were walking out of darkness into light. They were renouncing and being pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light by God's Holy Spirit. That is God's spirit. That is God's power. And it was the preaching of the gospel of Christ that did that. Well, so we can see how Paul ministered, but why? Why did he do it, and, his, and what was the purpose behind his method? My last point. Paul reminds the Corinthians that his purpose was so that they would put their faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom. It's not about trusting what group you're in, whether Paul, Apollos, Peter, etc. how clever you are. I mean, we have a broad range. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. We have a broad range of, of talents and education here and professional levels. It's wonderful in this congregation. We have this microcosm like the world. It's great. Everyone from babies to rocket scientists, literally. So it's wonderful. But God is not impressed with any of that, Our, both what we have and what we don't have. Some of us are in very wealthy families. Some of us not so much. God doesn't care either way. None of that buys anything with God. It's about solely looking to what God has done through Christ on our behalf and that alone. It's actively living out this faith and trust in him by the power of his Holy Spirit that he has promised is and is with us and in us. And again, like I've said, not simply trying harder. So Paul we find, did actually have a resolution. 
to know nothing among those in Corinth except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That they would put their faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom. And of all the resolutions that I can think of, this would be the best one of all for myself and for Westside Church as we enter in a new year. And we've only been meeting nine months now. In fact, nine months today, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. God has done an amazing work in that short time. And who knows what kind of work he has before us in front of that. But I can guarantee you this. Unless the foundation for what we do here is Christ Jesus and him crucified. Us laying of hold of that, what does that mean in my life? What does that mean in us as a church, as a body, as a community, as we interact with one another, or sometimes as we don't interact with one another but should? Those are questions and things that I think that we can apply this message to. I've come up with some, some, uh, a few examples, some from my own life. You can come up with your own if you'd like. But I would say have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom. To believe moment by moment the truth that in Christ Jesus I stand righteous and pleasing to him. That when the Father looks at me and when he looks at you if you're in Christ, he does so with delight and not with disappointment. Have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom by studying and obeying his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. Again, it's not just try harder, but it's feed yourself and work and act in the power of his spirit. As you ask him, he will give. Have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom by praying for him to provide for our material needs, trusting that he will indeed provide them. Have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom by upholding our marriage vow of fidelity to love our spouses. Have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom by actively praying and trusting God to grant us opportunities of his choosing and timing for ministry. Have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom by extending to my own children the same love and patience and grace that God has given to me through Christ rather than acting out of my own natural fallen nature. Have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom by praying for an assistant pastor for Westside Church who's dedicated to preaching God's inerrant and holy word and who has a vision for reaching and impacting this community of Rockrim and for Christ and not just someone who's hip or relevant in his style. Sorry, you're, you are hip and relevant, but you also preach the word. Have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom to look beyond our natural friendships or groups here at church, but to instead see with his eyes those who are lonely and hurting and in need of a friend and then act by God's power accordingly. Have faith in God's power and not in man's wisdom by putting worshiping God with his people first before sports and leisure activities as our culture oftentimes leads us to do. Well, I could go on. You can make up your own. And I ask you, and I challenge you to do so. The wisdom and power of God is demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross, and through his resurrection from the dead. This is the gospel, the good news that we preach. If you don't understand this, if this makes absolutely no sense to you at all, then I challenge you. Come and talk to me or to Jason or anybody here 
what does this mean? And let us walk with you on this journey. Christ did what we could not do. He died in our place for our sin and paid the debt that we owe that we could not pay. It is God through Jesus Christ, through his son, first to last, and there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I urge you, come to him today. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, such a simple message that Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose again for our righteousness. But, oh Lord, how profound. I thank you, Father, that this message, this gospel, is not simply for initial salvation, though certainly it is not resting that. But, Lord God, it is for us, we who know you and name the name of Christ, who are members of your family, who have been adopted by your Holy Spirit, and given that spirit of adoption, whereby we can cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And I pray you would help us to do so. When the enemy assails us and says, oh, you've done that again, God must really be disappointed with you or when our own conscience condemns us. Father, help us to understand the difference between conviction and condemnation. Because in Christ, your word promises that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Father, where conviction needs to be had, then, oh Lord, may your Holy Spirit have free reign. May he convict. May we come to you with our broken and messed up lives and watch as you put them back together through your Son. We pray we would hear this good news from one another. I pray you would give us eyes to see, Lord, that we might be instruments of your gospel grace to one another. That when there is an offense or a sin and repentance, that we can assure one another, I have good news. You are forgiven in Christ. Lord, we thank you for these nine months at Westside Church. We pray that you would go before us into this new year and the years beyond. Whoever is here, we pray that your word and your gospel, your message would clearly and uncompromisingly be preached every week. And Lord, lived out every day by the members here and the communities that you've planted us. Help us, Lord, to be missional indeed, to reach our neighbors to love them as we love ourselves by telling them, even at great risk of embarrassment, that God loves them through Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Happy New Year. One thing that is a joy for me being at Westside is that you all sing it out like the best. And I love the fortitude with which you sing, and it's, it's a great encouragement to sing with you and to join you in worship. Uh, Rob, can you cut my monitor on this last song? I'd like to be unplugged from my advantage. And again and sing, and let's proclaim the great love of our mighty Savior. Thank you. 
that will not last. 